not for cars, corporations, or capital, but for people. Um, that's really our focus. You do Are we going to have cars in all of our communities? Probably for a long time. You know, do we need capital? Yes, we have a lender. And are we going to have corporations involved? Sure, we already do. Our home builders, you know, are pretty big companies. But they are not the end user. And so they are not the stakeholder that we are designing the community for. We're designing the community for the people that are going to live there. And we are going to use those stakeholders as tools to get to that point. And so that mindset, it's allowed us to push through things of like, well, you know, why do we have so much parking? Well, the city requires it. Okay, we go to the city, we get that requirement removed. Why do you still have so much parking? Because our bank requires it. Okay, did you ever try pushing back on your bank? Did you ever send your bank data on how we're vastly overparked? And so I think we just realized that if we really dug down into each of these little issues, we could end up with a community that was much more human focused. Welcome to the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast a show about human environments and how they can be used as a force for good. Conversations that educate and inspire people looking for a different way to do real estate. I'm Neil Collins, and today I'm joined by Scott Snodgrass, farmer turned real estate developer and the co-founder of Maristim Communities. A theme that's been coming up for me and my work lately is about process. You see, rather than focusing on end products like houses, food, or consumer goods, process speaks directly to regeneration and the quality of aliveness. Process means that things are evolving, just like us in the biotic world that supports life on this planet. Process is also where I believe our answers to big questions Questions like how do we chart new paths and integrate new ways of being and doing? Now, the fun part of this show for me is spending time with people to understand their own process of becoming. These are the stories that are the fertile soils in which new ideas, businesses, and organizations grow out of. And what strikes me so much about this episode with Scott is his story and how he was able to go from urban gardener in Houston, Texas to farm manager across wider geographies, to then realizing that there's an opportunity to create an agriculture-based community out of what could have been a pretty challenging situation, as you'll hear. From Scott's realization that most real estate development companies are run by just a small handful of people, to then taking a more land developer approach by partnering with other builders and developers, this is an episode about integrating life experiences, embracing entrepreneurship, and the process of becoming an agri-hood developer in the founding of Maristem Communities. So Scott, this is a real treat because you are the first person that has been on the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast that has come out of Texas. So this is this is really fun. Um, the honor. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking about this a little bit before we hit the record button, but Scott, for for those people that don't know anything about you, why don't we start with you know your background, where you came from, and and give us just that grounding introduction into who you are as a person before we get into your work. Yeah, the uh, the origin story of how I got here. You know, it's funny, growing up, I didn't have, you know, really much of an interest in plants. I wasn't like some people I know in, in the agriculture and regenerative industries who were really from a young age had that connection to nature. I mean, we we grew up going camping and whatnot, of course, and being outside, but didn't really have this connection to plants or this even this like grounding in the earth that I've felt for the past 20 years now in my career. 
um, and certainly didn't have anything to do with real estate at that time. Don't have family members who are in real estate, didn't grow up in the industry, didn't study it in school, though I have a degree in in government from the University of Texas, and that has been instrumental and valuable for sure in the work that we do these days. But that wasn't my background. And I think when we first got into real estate, uh, and when I say we, I mean my my business partner, Clayton Garrett, and I, we do uh, everything together. So both of our businesses that we operate, we're 50-50 partners in. But I think I realized when we got into real estate, uh, I was like, how did I get here? Like, where's the path? I was asking the same question. What's my origin story that brought me here? And at the very beginning, I thought, well, it's I'm not connected at all. Like, I don't know how I got here. I just fell into it, right? But then as I've thought more and more about it, and I've looked back, like, certainly, I I did have um, interest in community and the way that people organize themselves. And even specifically being a child of the suburbs in Texas, specifically in urbanism too, um, and the action that could happen there. And of course, also, you know, really enjoyed the time out in the countryside and in nature as well. And so I think some of it is what we're doing now is the blending of those two things. And so growing up, um, I worked in coffee actually for a little while, managing a coffee shop and then started actually buying coffee directly from farmers and was a part of that kind of direct trade movement. In Houston, there were only two or three of us doing it at the time and started traveling to mostly Nicaragua and working directly with farmers and cooperatives of farmers there to buy coffee, bring it back, import it into the States, and then identify and train those coffee shops that could then brew that coffee in a really quality manner charge a higher price for their cup of coffee and therefore pay more for the beans and really to build that cycle of quality that ended up returning more money back to the farmers in Nicaragua. But I didn't know anything about farming. Mm. And so when I was traveling down there, farmers started asking me questions about we're having this problem with our plants and we're having this problem. And I was like, I'm not, I'm your like sales and marketing guy. I am not your ag consultant. But I asked them, I was like, where do you normally get the answers for these things? And they said, well, it's the chemical salesman in town is where we get our answers because he's the only person with answers. And they had even at that point realized his answers were always something we had to buy from him. Um, Always. There was never an answer that was just a simple fix. And I realized that these mountain villages where coffee is produced in northern Nicaragua at the time had almost no access to the Internet. I mean, hours of travel to get to a place where they could really access the Internet. And so even if they could access it, they know how to use a computer, um, all of those things. And so uh, I said, hey, I've got access to this stuff. I know how to research on the Internet. I can talk to people in the U.S. I can check books out of the library. So I started doing some research to try and help answer some of their questions. And that's really how the agriculture bug bit me. I, I, I love solving problems. And so I saw this like linear pathway of solving these problems. that was really interesting to me. And then over time, I found that what's the most interesting to me is not even viewing those linear problems in an ideological manner, but viewing a whole ecosystem and all of the interactions that happen. So once I had gotten into agriculture that way, I I ran a small farm for a resort community northeast of Houston for a few years. I ran a distribution company buying from local farms and selling to restaurants in Houston and got plugged into the market in that way. And then ultimately was had an edible landscaping company where we were helping people grow food in their own yards. And so uh, the beauty of Houston is we're subtropical. So you have a huge range of plants you can grow. And there's something producing literally every month of the year, which makes for a really wonderful climate for people to grow their own food. And so we did that for uh, 15 years. Clayton and I did that. And I got to jump in on that one then. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. An edible landscaping company in Houston for 15 years. I like when people say, it, you know, it seems like regenerative real estate. It's a little early. Uh, I would imagine in Houston, an edible landscaping company also might have gotten a similar critique. What does that clientele base look like, and what 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 was that work? Yeah. 15 years is a long time to be doing that. Yeah, it was the the client base was wealthy, um, obviously, because, you know, it is it's not something you have to do. It's kind of an extra thing you do with your expendable funds. So it was a little bit of a wealthy clientele, definitely more urban than suburban. I think people in the city, maybe just a little more progressive minded in Houston and interested in this work. Um, We didn't 
I didn't have a lot of people saying, wow, you're early for adoption here. It was usually like, oh, we got into this and we never expected there to be someone here who offered the services. So we had been going it on our own and failing and failing and failing and we needed the support. And I think that really is what allowed us to be successful. We had over a thousand clients in the Houston area. Um, wow. Did That's a million dollars of food producing gardens in people's yards in Houston for a long time, of course, with the support of a great staff doing that work alongside us for all those years as well. So we really enjoyed that work, uh, did it for a long time, but that got us pulled into things that weren't exactly what we were doing, because like I said, we were the only people in the space in Houston. And we really, we started our edible landscaping company. There were only, at the time that we formed, there were, I think, three or four in the country that we could find on the internet. Like there weren't many nationwide. And so we got pulled into any conversation about agriculture in the context of urbanity. Um, so if it was, you know, the city of Houston wanted to do a backyard gardening day, you know, we got pulled in somehow to that. If it was a hospital wanting to do a teaching garden and it had to be, you know, accessible for all different mobility types for people, we got involved in that and worked on the research for, for making it work both for the plants and for accessibility. And so a lot of that stuff fit within the realm of Edible Earth, which was the name of our our edible landscaping company, pretty well. But then we started getting pulled into a few projects that really didn't make as much sense. And we knew we needed another company. And so one of those was Harvest Green, which is a a master plan community in Houston. Uh, It's a thousand acres. They built uh, 1800 homes in their first phase. And then they've added on some land and are building more now. But Harvest Green was doing some edible landscaping throughout the community. And through a landscape architect friend, we got pulled into that project to just consult on their edible landscaping. And then as we dug in more and more and we're asking questions about, you know, this is an agri-hood, right? And that's how they were building themselves. And they said, you know, we're going to have a farm here. And we said, oh, who's running your farm? Because we know most of the people in the farm scene in Houston. And they said, well, it's the guy who was growing the sorghum and corn here before we bought the land and he's going to do the farm here. And we kind of cautioned the developer, um, that guy, he likes to be in his tractor most of the day and probably doesn't like interacting with a lot of people. And also probably doesn't have experience actually growing food for humans, which is what you need a farm in an agrihood to do. And so at that point we got pulled in to actually help design and then operate and still do operate that farm through our company Agmenity, which offers agricultural amenity services to developers, hospitals, and school districts. In and so Houston, or do you work statewide or nationwide? We consult nationwide and then we'll operate farms. Right now we're throughout the Southeast. Um, so we're, we have four farms in Texas, three in Florida and one in Alabama. Wow. And then, it's cool. Um, you know, we consult nationwide. If you need someone to operate your farm and we're going to a completely new region, then obviously it has to be a large enough farm to warrant a large presence for us. Whereas if it's someone in the Houston area, a smaller farm can work because we already have the support services of a regional manager in this area. And, you know, this is where our home base is. So depends a little bit on the side. But yeah, we, we operate throughout the southeast right now. And that company, you know, it's been a lot of fun to put farms in the neighborhoods for other developers to learn that whole process of how people want to interact with a farm, um, especially when they feel some ownership of it. It's like even a level beyond CSA kind of feelings of ownership where it's like I get a weekly subscription to this farm. I'm writing them a good size check every once in a while. So I feel kind of a part of the community. This is even to the point where in all of our projects, the homeowners associations or if there's a public financing district, like a municipal district or something like that, they own the farms and we just operate them. So the neighbors really feel an ownership because they do kind of indirectly own the farm. And it's different in every community and it's certainly different in different states um, as we learn that. But we embed full-time farmers in each of those farms. Our smallest farms will have two full-time farmers. You know, our we have a farm coming on in Florida that will probably grow to six or eight farmers um, that are full time at its largest size. They range from an acre of of farm site all the way up to, I mean, technically, one of our projects in Florida will be 175 acres of agriculture. 
within a community. Obviously, when you get to that scale, you have to move to less intense uses than vegetable production. So there will be, you know, grazing livestock on significant portions of that property as well. Being moved around in a regenerative manner, you know, uh, doing the intense rotational grazing on the property. But so that's kind of the work at Agmenity. Uh, well, still me, doesn't, I've got yeah, some go questions, questions about yeah. that because you see these developments that they want to integrate farming, but it's almost like the farm is, is this amenity and a life? It's like farm lifestyle for mm-hmm. more luxury housing. Some of them, it seems like they, they can't quite cohesively find the stride. And then I always like to ask, like, where do the farmers live? Because if they don't have proximity to that neighborhood, if they're just like priced out of everything, like, do you build in housing in the development or do you, is that something that a developer is thinking about? Like, what's the best practice to actually pull this up? Well, let me start with the housing issue. So that, that is real estate market dependent. So all of our farms in Texas right now don't have an affordability problem. There, there is affordable housing within a probably five minute drive of every farm that we have that is changing, <laughs> um, in Texas, but it's still not too bad. And, and we keep our eye on this pretty strongly. You know, the second point I'll make on that is you're hiring an amenity services company when you hire Agmenity. You're not hiring the individual farmer. So so we take on the burden of making sure that all of our employees are taken care of in that regard. So we have a cost of living index that's really key more specifically to housing. And we pay employees, you know, they may move from one farm to another, make a whole lot more money at that other farm, but really their purchasing power at the end of the day is the same as it was at the previous farm. They're getting paid more, but their housing is a lot more in that location. And then in the most exclusive locations, uh, we have a farm that's under development right now in Martin County, Florida. So this is the county north of of West Palm Beach. It's called the Treasure Coast. It's one of the most expensive places to live. It's been anti-development for like 40 years now. So there's a huge housing problem in the area. And so you only end up with really luxury homes. Uh, In that scenario, we will work with the developer on providing some housing within the community for farmers. It won't just be in a normal home they're selling because they're only selling probably $800,000 homes and up, which in the South is a big number. Um, but they, uh, you know, will provide some simple housing and not, not even just like a tiny house, something that's, you know, reasonable that, you know, plenty of our farmers have spouses and kids, partners and kids. And so, um, you know, we want to provide those opportunities. So we, we make sure to take care of that as our responsibility at Agmenity. But in the cases where it's really bad, we work with the developer on providing some housing and that can be done in different formats. Usually it's just that that property is owned by the homeowners association or the, the district that's doing the financing for the farm. And, you know, our company may pay a, a small amount of rent for each of the spaces the farmers use. So that was the housing. That's cool. And what's the typical demographic of your farmers that, that you're employing there? Are they new into farming or, or like what, what does that hiring process look like? It's, it's national. We don't have a strong farming community in the Houston region. Uh, what, history of vegetable agriculture specifically that existed in the Houston area has really been um, separated out and lost. Um, We don't have the culture that like uh, a Pacific Northwest or a California or a Madison, Wisconsin or an upstate New York has. We've even traveled to Atlanta and the research triangle of North Carolina and find stronger, you know, food cultures there than we have in Houston related to vegetable production. So so we hire nationally and we're bringing people who have experience in typically in market gardens, lots of times also with some educational experience related to agriculture. Either they went to an alternative school that offered a market gardening program, or maybe they have a traditional agribusiness degree, but realized that wasn't really where they wanted to do their work. Um, you have to have some full-time farming experience to come work for us. We learned that lesson early on that there's a lot of people who have romantic notions about agriculture. And they've been avid backyard gardeners for years and they take a lot of classes and they teach gardening classes and they want to become a full-time farmer, especially in Houston when you have to work outside in August every day and it's 80% humidity and it's 95 degrees. That romanticism gets crushed, you know, relatively quickly. So we like to avoid those scenarios where 
um, you might have someone who just runs into that that steamroller. So we hire people who have some experience. If you've only ever farmed in Maine or upstate New York, we warn you about the climate here and make sure that you've, you're prepared for that when you get here to Houston or to Florida. But it's it like all, um, you know, urban farming tends to skew young. Our employees' average age is probably like 28, um, something like that, 27. Almost everybody's got a college degree. Maybe a third of our team has master's degrees, not necessarily in agriculture. Um, and really, our farmers are working with residents in one way or another every single day. So these have to be people who like interacting with other people, but also who can suffer in our summer and who like to grow vegetables. So it does take a special person. Do they stick um, around for a while? Yeah. You know, I would say that turnover in the industry as a whole is pretty high. Um, but we have employees that have been with us. I mean, our company is now eight years old and at Agmenity, and we have employees who have been with us for five of that eight. And I would say that the crew of employees, I think we've really figured out a, how to set up the jobs where they're in a fashion that really work for people. If we pay at the top of the industry as well, and that helps keep people around. And then also doing a really good job in the selection process of making sure that we're hiring people who have a real chance of us being a good fit and then being a good fit for the work um, has really led us in the right direction. And then we, our leadership is entirely internally grown. So we're hiring people in and then trying to, to provide more opportunities for through growth for them to move up. So like right now we have 14 farmers maybe, and I want to say five of those have moved from one farm to another, uh, at some point, either needing to move from one location to another or as a promotion, uh, into a new role. So we really tried to keep that, that leadership growing in-house. Wow, that's so cool. I know that there's a couple of companies out there that that offer that kind of service, but how do you go from that into real estate? What let's continue that that through line here. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, like once we got into real estate, I was like, how did we get here? Right. Well, the, the real clear linear path is that we were now consultants for master plan community developers. So these are developers who are they're really doing land development. And they're doing neighborhoods with a thousand homes or more. And they're not building the homes. They they have production home builders who are building the homes. And so these neighborhoods are selling. I mean, Harvest Green did 415 homes in one year when it was at its peak. And so, you know, they're really selling a lot of homes quickly. So they're they are kind of like the big bulk model, I would say, like let's develop this neighborhood quickly and let's get it done compared to some other developments that are smaller. Maybe your home builder is the developer. It's done over a much longer period of time. These are kind of the large production style communities. And, you know, we were, it's like, hey, we need to have a meeting about the farm. So we'd get pulled in and start to meet people from the other disciplines involved in development. Um, Harvest Green was our first community for Agmenity. And we had a really generous general manager of the development who was like, Hey, we haven't done this before. You guys haven't done this before. This has only been done like seven or eight times across the country so far. And we're very different than Village Homes in Davis or Serenby in Atlanta. You know, it's a very different model. Harvest Green was pretty early in the arc of like big production master plan communities having agrihoods, you know. Um, so he said, hey, we just need you in every meeting. Let's just make sure that we never have a meeting without you all so that that way you get to comment on everything. And so every single week we were in development meetings. And sometimes it was just the whole meeting was about stormwater drainage with the engineers and we had nothing to say, but we got to sit in and see it. And I think where Clayton and I were shocked was in a couple of areas. One was this community, you know, it's tax assessed value when it's done will be close to $2 billion. And there are three people making all the decisions. And that seemed kind of shocking to us. We were like, oh, we figured that'd be a team of 200 people working on all these things. And so that was a little surprising. And then the way decisions were made, and we've seen this across the board, um, there are so many decisions to be made when you're developing any sort of real estate, but especially large scale. And you can definitely run into fatigue on making those decisions. And so many of the decisions you have to make aren't actually in your expertise area. 
they're in someone else's expertise area and you're having to trust them, but they still need you to make the decision because you're the, the person responsible for it at the end of the day. And so I think we were really surprised by those things. And we started asking questions like, why did you decide to put this street over here instead of over there? Why did you design this park in this area instead of another place? Why did you put all of your homes in the same price range into one little cluster instead of spreading them out across the community with other price ranges? And lots of times the answers to those questions from all these different developers were just, that's how we did it last time and it worked, or that's our SOP. I don't exactly know why we do it. Nobody ever really was like, here's the data for why this is the right decision. And so I think Clayton and I then were like, hey, this is kind of interesting. Not only that, we always thought that the most impactful thing you could do for someone's life was related to the food they eat. And now we had started to realize that while that is very impactful, that the way we organize our lives and our homes and our communities is it actually controls how you eat in a lot of ways. And so maybe it's even more impactful. And as we were looking for work that we felt like was impactful, where we could take our values and and have a positive impact on the world, we started to see that that there was some some good change to happen there. So next phase of the story, we bought a almost 300 acre piece of property that we were actually farming. And so we had Houston's largest direct-to-consumer farm called Loam Agronomics for three years. And we had 350 CSA members getting a box every week. You know, we bought like obscure equipment from Germany and Canada for kind of that like larger scaled, human scaled agriculture. We were also really pushing down the regenerative vegetable experimentation and research pathway, which still hasn't been explored that well. You know, I think there's been data and research done certainly on grazing regeneratively. I think that's where we have the strongest research. And then on field crops, we've started to see quite a bit of that with no-till and, and other methods. But in vegetable culture, we hadn't seen as much research. So we had a no-till transplanter and we could plant about 8,000 plants a day without tilling with a crew of you know three or four people on that tractor setup. So it was really trying to figure out some of those things. you know, And, and we did plant that many plants plenty of days. And then we realized we had to take care of that many plants uh, so what's the next step in that regenerative framework? Uh, so then it became a, a cold crest German finger weeder, which only disturbs the top half inch of soil if you can tune it correctly. But then for that to really work, you have to have a bed shaper shaping your beds at the very beginning that is very, very um, consistently shaping that bed. So then you can run through it consistently with a cultivator that just barely skims the surface and cleans the weeds around your plants. And so we were learning all these lessons about nature, about taking on too much, about holes in our business plans. And in the midst of all of that, had Hurricane Harvey hit Houston and dumped 46 inches of rain at the farm in four days. Thankfully, the river did not flood our farm, but we had just, you know, you have rain for four straight days constantly and fungal diseases just, you know, kill everything. So we lost everything but the okra and people can only eat so much okra. And we had a moment where we were like, okay, we had already eaten away at some of our reserves for the farm. We were struggling to find the staff that we needed. And then Harvey hit and we said, okay, like we need to start thinking about what we're going to do here to preserve the farm long-term. And for us, that meant not looking at a neighborhood, but looking at maybe let's find a way to sell a piece of our property we aren't using get some money from that. And maybe the use on that property can also support what we're doing. So we talked to a bunch of different people, some mixed use developers. There were a couple of pro football players trying to open an Olympic weightlifting facility and sports park that were looking for land in our area. So we started meeting with their team. Um, and then COVID hit, uh, right when we were in the midst of that exploration. And in the real estate world, everything stopped except for single family homes which only stopped for about a month when everyone was like, what's going to happen here? And then it shot through the roof. Um, home sales were really fast. Prices were going up. And builders, home builders were desperate for lots. They were going to sign any contract they could in any format to get lots. And so we were really lucky that we timed out with that. But we said, hey, it looks like single family is all we can do. So we're going to build a neighborhood. And we started going down that route. And that's when we formed Maristem Communities, which is our development company and started doing the work on Indigo, which is our first master plan community. That's a long story. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. I, I love the the twists and turns. And I'm really sorry to hear about Harvey. I, I grew up in South Louisiana and know mm-hmm. intimately the impact that those storms take. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad y'all were nimble enough. And what an incredible experience to have the ability to sit in those developer meetings to understand mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, you're throwing spaghetti at the wall, but being able to question and, and learn and then do this. Um, where are you at the, in the process now? Have you broken ground and delivered any homes or are you still in the planning and pre-dev stage? So we've, we've broken ground. Um, our mass grading for phase one is kind of wrapping up and they're starting to put in next week. They're going to start drilling the wells for our water plant and putting in the water sewer and drainage lines and paving will come in right after that. So we'll be We'll have our our grand opening for the public and our first opportunities to buy homes in January of next year um, for people to come and visit. We'll host a series of events prior to that as well, but that's when we'll we'll kick off those timelines. Um, for the so it community. sounds like you went a different route than Harvest Green, where you're not just doing the land development and entitlements, but you're going to be doing the vertical construction as well. No, no, no. We, we are working with production home builders who are doing the building for us. Where we do differentiate from Harvest Green quite a bit is that, um, you know, again, realizing that I'm an urbanist now over time and having grown up in the suburbs and loving Arcade Fire's album, The Suburbs, who actually, the brothers who started that band actually grew up in the Woodlands, uh, northwest suburb of Houston. I grew up in Kingwood. We were always high school rivals and everything. Um and just kind of hearing this and, and learning more about like the the issues with the suburbs. And I, I'd recognize them, you know, after grad, like in high school, it was like, there's nothing to do here. You have to have a car if you want to just go visit your friends or do anything. Right. And so starting to realize some of the, the downsides to sprawl and feeling like even though there's a bunch of people here, we're all separated from each other. And then I went to college at UT, which is an, an urban campus right next to downtown Austin. And, you know, it's, it's dense and built up all around it. And so having that experience was like, oh, like I, I took my car to college and plenty of people didn't. And I ended up just paying a bunch for parking um, that I probably didn't have to, because you could easily get around campus. And if you want to go any further, there was great transit, you know, for the immediate area around campus to get places. And I started to then think more about the suburbs. And so I, at that point, moved into the city, was living in the central city in Houston, working in the city. And was like, this is so great. What a great mixture of people, so much more diversity. And as I have this ecosystem view now, it's like, well, we that diversity is powerful and beneficial. If every person is fitting the same slot in the ecosystem, when that one slot runs into a shock that it can't handle, the whole system crashes. Versus if we have a range of people. So, and that could be race, it can be income, it can be family formation. Uh, it can be any of these things. But the reality is that we need as diverse of a mix uh, as we can have of things to provide that resilience and stability. And so as we've designed Indigo, it's it's really been, you know, our, our, our lens at Maristem Communities is places for people, not for cars, corporations, or capital, but for people. Um, that's really our focus. Do Are we going to have cars in all of our communities? Probably for a long time. Are we going to have, you know, do we need capital? Yes, we have a lender. Like you have to have money to do these things. And are we going to have corporations involved? Sure, we already do. Our home builders, you know, are pretty big companies. But they are not the end user. And so they are not the stakeholder that we are designing the community for. We're designing the community for the people that are going to live there. And we are going to use those stakeholders as tools to get to that point. And so that mindset, it's allowed us to push through things of like, well, you know, why do we have so much parking? Well, the city requires it. Okay, we go to the city, we get that requirement removed. Why do you still have so much parking? Because our bank requires it. Okay, did you ever try pushing back on your bank? Did you ever send your bank data on how we're vastly overparked? Did you ever send your bank pictures of every shopping center in your area on Black Friday still with empty parking spaces? And so I think we just realized that if we really dug down into each of these little issues, we could end up with a community that was much more human focused. So Indigo differs from Harvest Green in that it is much denser. So the lots are smaller. Square footages of the homes are smaller. We have more than 50% open space. 
So it falls under what's commonly called like the conservation development mindset, the old English Hamlet view where it's like try to be as dense as you can here and then preserve open space around it. And then walkability comes as a byproduct of that. And so 85% of our homes are within a five-minute walk of our mixed-use town center, which we call Indigo Commons. Who did you get to do the site planning? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm curious. Like, you got to bring in these different professions from architecture, site planning to civil engineering that got to be attuned to this vision as well. Yes. Again, they're those subject matter experts that I can't design the drainage system for our community. But I really need to make sure that it's designed in a manner that still supports walkability. So, like, you do have to get everyone on board with that. And what I would say is that it's a it's a fine mix of balancing who needs to be local to your project. You know, land planners tend to work pretty wide ranging. I think that's okay. You know, engineers tend to be more locally focused, and I think that's smart. You do want an engineer who has experience with your jurisdictions. But then you need someone who either is already on board with a lot of your philosophies or that you can get on board with your philosophies. And that has been a struggle for us. I mean, we're on our second civil engineer at this point in the community uh, and feel really good about where we've ended up now with, with a team that has experience in our area, has experience with low impact development style drainage systems already and has done them and frankly pioneered them in our area. Um, and then also who can get on board with the even wackier things that we're doing. And we, we try to be explicit up front. We've started a document called like on working with Maristem communities. And it's like, here's all the weird things to expect about working with us because we've realized that, that like some of our consultants come in and give us a proposal for the normal amount of workload they expect to have for this type of project. And then they work with us and they realize, oh, we need twice as many meetings because we're actually going to have conversations about all this stuff instead of just submitting a, a set of plans that get checked off on. And we're going to pull in other partners who are other parts of the ecosystem, again, that are going to come in and comment on things. So we talk about overlapping scopes. Our engineers get to comment on the land plan. Our town architects get to comment on the land plan. We actually have multiple land planners working on the project. So um, SWA's Laguna Beach office uh, started out as our land planner, Drew Watkins. And then Drew shifted over to JZMK, another planning and architecture firm. And so we jumped with him there because he had really led the charge in our land planning. But then Dolan Group Architects, they're a big... They're a big national firm with still a family feel and are really client oriented. And we've known the president for maybe close to a decade now. And so that was kind of an easy choice for us to choose her and her firm. But we have their director of architecture and their director of land planning, both on our project, and they're acting as the town architect. So not only overseeing some of the land planning, really working on the land planning of the commons, and then commenting on the land planning for the residential with Drew Watkins, but then also overseeing the architectural guidelines for our home builders and what kinds of homes they are allowed to build. So it just that section of the process alone is really complicated. And then beyond that, we have Opticos Design, who's architecture and land planning out of Berkeley, um, doing some land planning and architecture for mansion apartments for us within the community. So again, we're pulling in three or four or five different planners and architects. And we have we actually have like seven different engineers on the project by the time you go through ecological, environmental, hydrology, and, and you go through all those civil, um, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and uh, structural. Uh, you have this, just again, huge ecosystem. So making sure all those partners really are a good fit is really important for what you're doing. So you've got 50% or more open space for the farm, to, I take it, mixed use. How many homes are you planning there? So we're 235 acres. And so on that, there will be 670 homes for sale. And then we'll have about 170 rental units. And those will be apartments, but they're in a few different formats. And they're distributed throughout the community instead of being in one multifamily building. Do you get to hold on to any of these pieces? Or are you just working with production builders? The homes for sale will all be production builders. The residential like apartment units yet to be determined. We have a, a multifamily partner who's who's done this like differentiated model before and they're interested in it. And we're working through that process. If that doesn't work out with them, 
we'll slow it down. It'll take longer for us to do it all, but then we would entertain doing some of the pieces ourselves. Mm. Within the mixed use part of the community, we also have what we call incremental retail offering. So they're very small buildings. They're on thousand square foot footprints. And we're actually trying, we're selling these to small businesses. So we want them to actually be tenant owned buildings, owner occupied. And the idea there was that on the the home side of things, we had thought about like, we need to have homes for all different kinds of people, all different families and all different stages of life. On the retail side, we were still thinking a little bit more in the traditional mixed use model of like, it's really a three-story apartment building, but the bottom floor has some retail on it. And we said, hey, that's that's kind of standard now. And what are we not thinking about differently? And we realized that we didn't have any opportunities for retail ownership. And the leasing model for retail can be really extractive, especially with like restaurants. If a landlord just thinks their restaurant is successful, you know, when that five-year lease renewal comes up, it's always a substantial increase. And if they see all the news and media about you and and they drive by and there's always a line outside the door, uh, your rent rate may double sometimes. And so for us, it was kind of like, yeah, that it would be the same thing in the leasing model that like you're living in a neighborhood and paying a certain rent rate, that neighborhood all of a sudden becomes really popular. Like, yeah, your rent goes up. And we need rental opportunities for residential and for retail. But we also felt like there needed to be ownership opportunities. And so we have uh, 22 buildings. They're two and three story. They're basically 20 feet wide, 40 feet deep. And they they look like an old downtown. You know, they're, they're zero lot lines. So they're right next to each other, but they are separate buildings. And it's the way that an old downtown would have been built in a smaller city. And so... Uh, we have those opportunities as well. We will probably build a bunch of those, but the goal is to sell them to small businesses. We've had enormous investor interest in those already, and we're we're not interested in that right now. And really trying, like, we want small businesses to be the owners. Uh, if we will have other opportunities, if someone wants to invest in a mixed use building at a larger scale, um, we'll have opportunities for that as well. Wow, that's so interesting. I haven't really thought about that of positioning those those retail spaces and you would do that as a condo or no uh all of our entitlements in our jurisdictions those can be fee simple there's like a two inch air gap between the buildings but you have to do a little bit more on like the fire rating side but um we think that the the look and the walkability of it is really powerful you know we could if we lined them all up end to end you could have 22 of these buildings would it would only be like 400 feet to walk from one end to the other or something like that it makes for this really engaging, walkable space. And I, I was just up in Toronto last all of last week for Urban Land Institute's spring meeting. And I was struck at how so much of the fabric of Toronto is exactly that. It's two and three story. It's retail on every single bay on the bottom floor. And then the second and third floors are apartment units that are leased out. And so, you know, we wanted to provide that same opportunity. So while the small business is buying the unit, they may live above or they may lease out the space above to someone else as an apartment, or it may be office space for their business or whatever. We're just requiring that that bottom floor has to be active retail or services where you're like open to the public and anybody can come in um, to talk to you about what you do. Hmm. So we're really excited about that. I think it's an unusual format, um, but it's actually not. It's the way that things used to be done. It's just unusual today. And it's still the way things are done in so much of the world, just not here in the U.S. It's not really a new idea, but it's something that our certainly our area hasn't seen in a very long time. Um, so we're excited to bring that. Yeah, I like that. That's amazing. What What's it like working with these production builders? It's, it's not an area that I have a lot of expertise in, but are you hand selecting them? Are you giving them discounts on bulk lots? Are they giving any pushback on the size and the construction design criteria, like what, give me some insights into that whole aspect. Do you know if any of your listeners are production builders? I do not think that we are <laughs> the, audience, the audience's production builder uh, listeners. I, I'm fairly certain to, <laughs> to um, go out on that limb. It is the, uh, it's the like developers trope to gripe about builders, I think. And what I'll say is that we were given really good advice in the beginning. We were first-time developers. 
And so what we heard from some of these experts that we had hired to consult us was, you know, if you go and work for a, a public, big public national home builder, their responsibilities are really only to their bottom line and their shareholders. And that is how the system's set up. There's nothing like secret or wrong about that. That's just how they're set up. But we were advised that if, if in your first project, you go work with a national public home builder, you're just going to get pushed around. And we saw this with the interest rates going up recently, that a lot of the publics just slash deals. And they said, we understand we're under contract for this deal. And the market had been 19% earnest money is what home builders were putting down on lots a year or two ahead of actually purchasing the lots. And uh, they were cutting deals and losing millions of dollars they had already paid out in earnest money on on it just to not have to pay the other 80% on those lots. And so I'm, I'm glad that we listened to that advice. So we have uh, David Weekly Homes, who's a national home builder, but they're based here in Houston. And so we get to meet David Weekly and Chris Weekly, who's now the president, and you know work with their company um, out of their Houston division here. And David Weekly has a great reputation for being a quality home builder, great reputation with their buyers, also a good reputation with developers that they're willing to work with you um, on your architecture and what you're trying to do. And they've been really good partners in that regard. Highland Homes, um, I believe they're the largest Texas-only builder. I think they do two or 3,000 homes a year in Texas. Um, so very large, but just confined to Texas. And again, we know the vice presidents and president of the company because it's, you know, they're only building two to 3,000. So they're only working with 50 developers, you know, maybe at a time. And then Empire Communities, who is out of Toronto, but has a Texas division for about five years now. And Empire has been really fantastic to work with too. They're one of the largest home builders in North America, but they're very, they're very focused on building homes for a wider range of people. So they're building some of the like what we would call specialty, real specialty product that we're doing in the community. The homes that are uh, very atypical for Houston. So for example, we're doing cottages that they run 800 to 1400 square feet. They're one, one and a half story. They're on 2100 square foot lots. For Houston, that's like shockingly small for the suburbs of Houston. In fact, our minimum lot size in our jurisdiction is 6,000 square feet. That's the smallest you can go. So we had to work on a development agreement with the city, show them what we were doing, explain the value in it to get them to buy into it so we could have our entitlement for those lots. Um, so Empire is doing, doing that for us and some of the other really unique things that we're doing. Wow. And do you sell at a discount with, with bulk or how, how many lots do they buy at a time? I don't know if I don't know if discount is right. I mean, we we aren't selling to people one by one, mm. so there's nothing to compare it to. Um, I'm sure if we did, they would be a lot more expensive. But they're on our contracts. Uh, each builder ranges anywhere from fifty to uh, hundred and ten, maybe per contract per phase. Each builder is building fifty to one hundred and fifty homes. And we expect those to sell within, you know, a year, maybe 18 months. Uh, and then we'll be on to the next phase. And we have three phases coming. Wow. What's the farming aspect look like? How do you integrate that in with, with the neighborhood? Yeah. So uh, the farm in total is 42 acres. Um, you know, 35 of that is pasture. And we still haven't nailed down exactly what's going to happen on that pasture. Um, some sort of regenerative grazing, you know, I would guess for sure egg laying hens. Uh, I think that's just kind of the easiest, lowest hanging fruit. And in our market, you can never produce enough eggs to meet the demand. Even at $6, $7 a dozen, you can never produce enough here. It's the one product that people do really want in our market. We may do some broilers alongside that. We've tossed around the idea of maybe experimenting a little bit with some of the sheep varieties that are being um, explored in our area. We're really humid, so we have a lot of parasite issues with sheep here. But it is going to be real pasture, so we don't want to put goats out there who are really browsers and want to be eating woodier material. We want actual grazers, but we also don't want um, to have 
you know, cattle are really big. <laughs> and so that's a whole other ball game if you're moving into cattle. So we're looking at maybe some sheep. And then we're exploring the idea of some agrivoltaics out there as well and blending solar uh, power generation with probably the laying hens and maybe the sheep as well over there. Um, then that's all kind of like on the far east side of the property, the furthest away from the homes. Um, and then in our our Indigo Commons town center, there we have like right up uh, at the entrance to the community. Like when you come to our community, the two entrance roads flank the farm. So you have to drive through the farm to get into the neighborhood. And then those two entrance roads kind of surround the Indigo Commons. And so we have retail. We have three buildings uh, three blocks of those incremental buildings facing onto the farm um, that just have like a little slip street in front of them. And so that that's kind of the vegetable and event portion of the farm. And that's a little under seven acres altogether there. So we'll, if you want to like net out the actual acres and vegetable production, we'll probably end up at like three to three and a half acres of actual vegetables. So if, that's a lot for most of our Agmenity farms. And this farm will be run by Agmenity. Um, that's a lot of acreage and vegetables because they're really high labor and three and a half acres of vegetables feeds a lot of people. Uh, and like I said, we don't exactly have that vegetable culture here in Houston that you have the demand you might have in some other places, but at three and a half, we'll be selling heavily into restaurants throughout the Houston community. So some of our production will be geared more towards like salad mix, uh, lettuces that we can do on a large scale and really efficiently so that we can sell them at $6 a pound instead of eight. Um, which is kind of the maybe the breaking point for a lot of restaurants in Houston. Interesting. Wow. Well, th- the thing that really impresses me about these types of communities is like you've got two business models that you got to figure out. You know, you're doing land development for vertical construction. You're doing farming, which requires its own business model. But both of them need sufficient amounts of planning and capital. How does that come together? Like, did you own the land outright and you're able to to leverage it to do the land development side? Or are you taking on investors to do that? Walk me through how this is actually coming together for dollars and cents. We were lucky in that we were in the land at a pretty low basis. We bought it at an agricultural rate before it really had been fully swallowed up by development. So we were lucky in that regard. And then you know, most land development deals are private lending based. So there are not a lot of banks that do land development deals because they're too risky for their portfolios. It is land development is considered the most the riskiest real estate uh, investment that can be made. It also can have the highest returns uh, if the market's right, but it's so market dependent and the timelines are so long that you have to be in a position where you can hold that asset for a very long time if things go wrong, like three years if things go wrong. And there's some of these communities um, like Rancho Mission Viejo in Orange County, like they will go through probably four real estate cycles just in the development of that community, maybe five uh, in the development of that community. So you have to be ready to ride the waves up and down. And those developers are thinking about things like, I want to be negotiating lots with builders when, when I can, when the market's on its way up and I want to be selling homes when it's all the way at the top. And then I want to be slowing things down when I think the market's going to slow down. And sure, we're still selling homes. We're still keeping it going, but we're slowing it down. That would have been too complicated for us. And I also, I think there's value in small. And I think, so I think that like the size we're at is really good. 235 acres is really good for us right now in that regard. It's not as big of a risk, but we're with a private lender. We're hundred percent debt financed. Um, on the deal. And we were able to access a revolving note, which I think is unusual, but really beneficial for land development because you spend a bunch of money uh, because you're phasing everything. You spend a bunch of money, then you get a bunch of money in, and then you need to spend a bunch of money again. But the reality is we have to start developing phase two before phase one is done. And so if I want to do each phase as its own financing, I've got to get my financing in line for phase two before I'm even done with phase one. And what new lender to you wants to lend you money for a phase two when they know you're already leveraged in phase one? And frankly, probably all of your land is already collateralized to that loan. So second position isn't going to cut 
what they need for that. And so for us, you know, the the financing facility we worked out with a private lender was, you know, we just want a revolving note with a maximum. And, you know, so in this instance, like our, our note is a $16 million cap, but we will spend probably 65 million when it's all said and done as you revolve that note. So we'll spend the money, we'll get income for selling land, uh, we'll spend more money. You know, we have a municipal utility district, so we have to pay for all the streets, all the water, even our water plants, our wastewater treatment plants. We pay for all that up front, but then we get paid back for that later once the taxable value is proven on the ground. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's complex. Where did you go find that that private lender? I mean, that that sounds like a really nice setup for what you're doing. Uh, we found it by being told no a whole bunch of times and still going and still going and still going and trying to learn from each experience. And we did feel like the first, you know, we talked to the kind of three or four major players in the area in our market that other developers use. And the first one was just like a, not for a first time developer. Sorry, we're not doing that. And then, you know, then it we refined our pitch a little bit. And I think that got past some of that. And then, then the next rounds were kind of, hey, this sounds good, but we need you to have, you know, $4 million in equity in the deal to make this work. And, you know, we looked in our bank accounts and, and at all of our friends' bank accounts and realized we didn't have that kind of money. So we moved on to the next one and we got, it, it did get closer and closer and closer until we finally got to this last lender who we said, hey, our basis in the land is so low. We have so much equity in this land. We could sell this land and have twice the equity, three times the equity that you're asking us to have. Um, so can you just count that? And ultimately, they were able to work out a deal where the amount of money we had paid for the last, I don't know, six months or a year to carry the note that we had on the land previously from it being a farm. They said, okay, we'll count that as your equity in the deal. And that hits the threshold we need to make it work. So, you know, to your listenership, you know, don't take no to mean that everyone's going to tell you no. You know, I would say keep pushing through and keep asking around and, and network and try to figure out who's doing more creative stuff. Don't be scared of high interest rates. Make sure that they pencil for you. But for us, if we had a 20% equity partner and then a better interest rate, we would make less money than having a 0% equity partner and paying a much higher interest rate. Wow. Um, we'll make more money in the end on that deal. It doesn't make the deal any more likely to fail or anything like that because we haven't leveraged it. You know, We have a 50% loan to value cap on our notes. So we're never going to get like way out over our, our skis on this deal. Do you get to do any cool innovative stuff? I mean, you're, you're working at a scale that you can, you can look at energy or affordability or wastewater, like any, yeah. any kind of cool bells and whistles oh. there. Yeah. Uh, all of it. It's a noisy place. We're doing wastewater reuse with our irrigation system. We've been working through that right now. It's an area that the industry really needs to catch up on its uh, competency with. I feel like I'm leading the charge in it and I shouldn't be the one leading the charge on it. There should be, you know, we've had, we have plenty of consultants who have had experience in this space with re water reuse. We're also, our landscaping, very little turf, which in Houston, it's like landscaping is 90% turf in master plan communities. We're very little. We also, have narrower rights of way. Our homes are closer to the streets. Like there's just less open space within the urban part. And then in the natural spaces, most of that we're not irrigating. Like it, it's native. Uh, it, it will turn brown sometimes and it'll turn green again later and it'll be fine. Um, but within the more manicured part of the neighborhood, we're mostly perennial plantings. So it's more expensive up front to put in. Um, but because we have fewer square feet, it ends up being about the same for us. And then our irrigation is a lot less. So our wastewater system is going to produce twice the water that we need to run our entire irrigation system for the whole community. So, you know, we're working through some of those things. How do you size the storage tank? You know, how do you make sure you have the right filtration and, and safety switches and all that stuff on it? Um, so we're doing that. Um, on energy, Texas is a difficult state with regulations on energy. We had winter storm URI. You know, the whole state was out of power for like three or four days. That happened while we were planning this neighborhood. And so instantly we were like, how do we avoid this in the future? And we went down that trail of trying to figure out, you know, what, what do we do to, to solve this problem? And the reality is all distribution happens through basically a 
publicly controlled monopoly in our area. So Centerpoint Energy is the only person with the rights to serve energy to any private users. Um, once you hit Centerpoint's meter, then beyond that, you can do whatever you want to. So, you know, for like our homeowners association's power for like street lights or amenities and those sorts of things, we can have solar that serves those as a backup. You know, we can do those sorts of things, but you can't do it as a community-wide microgrid, which is unfortunate because we were ready to invest in that and move that direction. But we are doing what's called virtual power plants. So beyond a meter, you can have solar power and that power charges a battery, a very large battery, like shipping container sized battery. And then, so there are companies who will come in and install that for you. They call it green infrastructure as a service. Um, They will come in and install that for you at no cost. And then they sell, they buy and sell power on the market, basically just trading energy. Um, when energy rates are really high, they sell the power out of the battery back to the grid. Um, the grid likes that because it provides stability across the grid for them to have power sources coming when they need it the most in those demand generation moments. But then when the cost of power is really low, they trickle charge the battery to make up for anything that the solar is not doing to recharge the batteries already. Hmm. Um, and so that none of that really benefits us. But then if the grid fails, you know, the benefit here is that the contracts with those providers are written where if the grid fails, the power becomes the communities that's on the battery until the grid is restored. And so in that case, we can have lily pads throughout the community um, where there is, you know, three or four days worth of power for a small building uh, there. So if you need to come in, if you're like heat sensitive and have health conditions, you can come and there will be air conditioning in this building. If you have a breathing machine that needs to be charged, you know, like an, uh, an oxygen machine, bring it over here and charge it. Um, and then there's places in the community where we may put some, they have those solar power, um, the solar street lights that also have like a charging plug on it. So it's like, you can go just plug your phone in there and charge them. We're not using those for the bulk of our street lights, but there will be some places further out where power would be more, more challenging to bring that we would do. So there's that. Our drainage and detention facilities we're designing as an ecological habitat for migratory birds. We already have some threatened migratory species that have used our property in the past. And just when it was a farm and the fields would get kind of wet, they would come in and use the farm space. So we have uh, sandhill cranes and rosate spoonbills, uh, which basically look like flamingos that would come to our property. And we have bald eagles and other stuff too. So we're developing the lake in that manner, doing fish habitat as well making it a really like an ecological place that's going to be beautiful for kayaking and swimming and fishing as well. So we're doing, I mean, there's a bunch more, we're doing a lot of little bells and whistles like that uh, in all, on all different arenas. That's so cool. Scott, I'm, I'm sure people are going to want to check out uh, Indigo and Maristim. Where, where can people find, find out more just um, if they're interested in, you know, I don't know what our, our listener base is in Texas, but I'm sure several people's ears have perked up around this community because it sounds really cool. Um, yeah, let, let's figure out where we can direct them. Yeah, so uh, if you want to learn about Maristem Communities, it's just maristemcommunities.com. Uh, and I definitely recommend, there's like a, a more about us link on there that has what we call our Humanifesto. It's our design philosophy. So if you want to learn more about what Maristem believes, there's a great couple of paragraphs there with information about that. And then there's a contact form where you can reach us. Clayton and I actually read every one of those emails that comes through. As long as it doesn't get caught by the spam filter, uh, we read every one of those. So feel free to reach out to us there. We're both pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Again, I'm Scott Snodgrass and he's Clayton Garrett. You can find us there. And then if you want to learn more about Indigo, it's indigocommunity.com. And then we have a separate website for our town center, which is indigocommons.com. And you can find links to both of those on each of each other's websites. But uh, there's information about the residential side on one and then on the retail and office side on the other. Oh, well, this is amazing. I, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to hear that the evolution. And I, I mean, what an ambitious project, but it sounds like you've got your arms around it. And um, if if you're doing it another round, like, how exciting and i i wish you all the best scott well thanks so much for having me on today i really enjoyed our conversation
If you want to follow our work at Latitude, you can follow us on Instagram at latitude.regenerative.re and mine is at I am Neil Collins. We inherently believe in the potential that comes from connecting value-aligned and purpose-driven people together in community. That's why I encourage you to join our mighty network and introduce yourself to the other people working across the globe to advance a more regenerative, resilient, and beautiful world. Here, we want to know what you're working on and what inspires you. Through this platform, you can attend live events, take courses provided by our podcast guests, and create connection with other people and businesses that share your same passion. To join, find the link in our show notes or visit our website at chooselatitude.com. If you'd like to support the show, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow us on your podcast app so that you always have the latest episode downloaded. Another way to support our regenerative field building is to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Positive ratings help attract amazing guests, and they can be the deciding factor for someone else to tune in and listen. And who knows, maybe this is the kind of motivation that it takes for them to finally decide to align their profession with their sustainable and regenerative values and become a positive force for good within their own community. This show was produced by myself and edited by Anthony Wallace and offered as a part of our work with Latitude Regenerative Real Estate.